Hello, everybody. I'm Flood the Drummer. Thanks for being tuned into the Drumming for Justice podcast. It's Monday, May 7th, and I have someone special for you to meet. Philip Jackson is a journalist with the Philadelphia Tribune and Billy Penn. He reports on education and justice, and tonight he joins me to talk about his latest story for Billy Penn about a gentleman who's been in prison for 34 years and who's now looking to the new Philadelphia District Philip Jackson, good evening, and welcome to Drumming for Justice. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time out to speak with me. Um, before we jump into the story, it seems like there's this um, re- recurring storyline since January of this year uh, where everybody's looking to the district attorney for help. And it's almost as if Larry Krasner, who was inaugurated, uh, I believe, January 2nd or January 3rd of this year, has a cape. That he's wearing cape, he's some some type of superhero. Have you have you seen that in some of your reporting that that everybody's kind of looking to him to, to save the day? Yeah, I can kind of agree with that sentiment. Um, that's kind of the case with uh, a lot of the stories, especially when we start talking about um, people who are trying to find exoneration and they they're facing these um, long term sentences that date back to the early 1980s, early 1990s, you know, however, so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking to a lot of community members, whether it's in North Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, um, you know, other parts of the area, I would say that a lot of uh, residents, you know, they're looking to Larry Krasner to fix certain types of things, whether it's, um, you know, low-level offenses, not being prosecuted for cash bail, and uh, people trying to get exoneration of them, feeling like they're falsely charged from sentences that dated back to like almost 1984, you know, and specifically with the case of Gary McWhorter, it's kind of like the similar story of now that Larry Krasner is in office, this might be the chance that we have to finally get uh, some type of fix in the city's criminal justice system. Yeah. So this story, uh, the headline is in prison for 34 years, despite false testimony. He's one of many looking to Philly D.A. Krasner for help. You can find this article on BillyPenn.com. You know, before I, you know, the the whole idea of the story and and who this gentleman was, you know, before I get into that, the the big thing that stuck out to me of the story was this line here, uh, halfway through the article where you write, the first four months of this year have already brought in 179 requests, 40% more than all of 2017. Of those, uh, there's about 20 that are actively being investigated the rest are under review. So, I mean, that, that kind of goes to what we were just talking about where, uh, you know, the, the incarcerated community uh, are, are hearing that, hey, there's actually an opportunity for a real second chance now. This guy Krasner is not just giving, you know, uh, Gary uh, hope, but he's giving a lot of people hope. Right. Yeah, and I can yeah. agree with that. So you wrote this story on Gary, Gary McHorter, Uh, And he's been in prison since, I believe, uh, 1984. He was sentenced to life in prison on June 26th in 1984. And he's been there ever since. And you say this is despite the 1986 admission by a key witness that they'd given a false testimony. So a guy gets sentenced to jail. Two years later, someone comes out and says it isn't true. And he's still there. Yes. And, you know, I think that's kind of been almost like a reoccurring thing with some of these cases, you know, like there's been other cases that have come out, even with uh, Eric Riddick and Christine Riddick, who's been protesting her son, who's been incarcerated for a certain amount of time and false conviction has come out about his case. 
and you know he still sits in jail for a certain amount of period of time and even when you look at you know some cases that don't relate to a murder trial a murder case but they might relate to an inter- interaction with a police officer and certain testimonies given and then now years later you find out that that police officer was inaccurate or he didn't say this or he's recanting or other people are recanting their statements on certain things and yeah um it's almost like I don't want to say it's a trend, but, you know, you kind of see it happening over and over again. And I think now people are seeing Krasner as an avenue to try to fix what hasn't been fixed. Yeah. Well, to your point, there's so many of these stories. What was it about Gary McHorders that stuck out to you? Why this story? I mean, and I know you've written on Christine Riddick and Eric Riddick, but, but how'd you come across this story about Gary McHorder and his significant other, Bonnie Floyd? So I first came across this story um, through a letter that was sent to me. I first wrote the story about Christine Riddick and about her son trying to find exoneration through Larry Krasner. She went, mm-hmm. she went through his case. Um, she presented documents outside of the district attorney's office. She was accompanied by some local um, activists in the city, uh, Asa Khalif being one of them. And it was a sentencing that she's been protesting against for a long time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so with that story, he said in the letter, at least, that he read my story, contacted me after that. And I had to, I read it, I had to do um, some of my own personal research. As soon as I got the story, I did go meet with the family to okay. see, you know, see like the legitimacy of it to see their side of see what was going on. What was that like talking to these people who were, who were at the times just strangers? Um, I was kind of really open-minded to it actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't think he would write, write me for no reason. And, um, I saw this, I saw the letter and I just kind of wanted to take time to talk with the family. And as soon as I met them, they had all of their documents laid out. Okay, so they were prepared. Yeah, they were prepared ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where the and this, the the majority of the family lives in Southwest Philadelphia. Yes, they live okay. in uh, Southwest Philadelphia. Um, his brother Stephen McWhorter, he owns a barbershop in uh, the Point Breeze neighborhood of North Philadelphia. South Philly. Or uh, South Philly, yes. Sorry. Okay. So in preparing for this story and in doing this story, you, 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 I guess you, you were able to contact Gary via phone while he's in prison. Right, I was. Um, that was actually kind of unexpected. Um, Why so? Well, when I first was going to meet with his uh, significant other, Bonnie Floyd, in southwest Philadelphia, I was only expecting to really talk to her. Um, I didn't know that he was going to be able to phone in during that same time oh, okay. that uh, mm-hmm. I was talking with her, I thought I was going to, you know, kind of be reviewing the documents, um, getting comment from her, obviously, and then kind of taking things from there and hopefully getting in contact with his brother and, you know, other people that might be necessary in the story. But he coincidentally was, um, I guess they kind of had this set up that they wanted to um get comment from him and then also you know like let me see the documents that they had ready and he explained his point via cell phone uh while he was in prison or via phone while he was what in was prison. your what was your impression of of him upon first talking to him 
Um, he seemed honest, and he seemed like he'd been uh, sitting in there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of a – it was a story to where it's, it, you can tell that they've been uh, trying to do something for a long time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, the, the gratefulness that I kind of felt in their – the introduction of even what was going on in his situation, that somebody mm-hmm. was even uh, taking time out to listen to, to their story, taking time in to just look through their files. You know, it was simple things that kind of stood out to me that mm-hmm. kind of added to the credibility of the story alone. And so, uh, you know, they have filed uh, his significant other, Bonnie Floyd. They've filed a, a um, I guess, a motion uh, or or filing with the Conviction Integrity Unit mm-hmm. uh, under Krasner. And uh, according to your article, uh, after that request was filed with the CIU, uh, the Pennsylvania Innocence Project also sent a letter saying its attorneys will look at the case. Had, there's been, had there been any follow-up with, with the PIP since this publishing? Yeah, so today, I got a text around 11.50 this morning from Ms. Bonnie Floyd. And I'm sorry, we, we we lost you for a few minutes. Say that again. Can you hear yeah, me Yeah, say it one more time. Yeah, I got a text from uh, Ms. Bonnie Floyd. Okay. Uh, around like 11.50 this morning. Um, she confirmed that lawyers were representing Gary's case and that they're looking to start investigating, at least the lawyers are, um, as far as the district attorney's office. So let me just be clear. Um, Gary McWhorter is now being represented by the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. That she did not necessarily confirm, but I would think that that's what she was referencing. Okay. Um, she said, at least in the message, she said the lawyers, I still didn't take the time out to ask more so the specifics about that because that was kind of during the work day. Okay. Um, but yeah, she said that she, um, that lawyers have contacted her for representation. Okay. The family was looking for representation from um, several lawyers and they had a lot of failed attempts. Okay. So, um, yeah, the specifics around that, that's something that I would have to find out. Okay, but it's very possible now, from what it sounds like, that he could get representation from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. It seems like it's very possible, yeah. You ever wonder, you ever think about, like, what keeps these guys hopeful? I mean, you know, 30-plus years in a fucking prison cell, I, I know personally I would lose my mind, and yet there's so many guys who just won't give up. I mean... How do you feel when you when you hear about these stories of people who've been in jail since 1980 or 1984 or 1986 and they're still fighting? It's conflicting um, because it gives you two different sides. You know, it gives you hope mm-hmm. because, you know, they're obviously hopeful. You know, to sit in jail for that long, you have to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. You have to have some type of faith. Um, I'm sure... You know, even not physically seeing your family or people you're familiar with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, even having some type of hope after that, some type of faith after that, I think speaks volumes. Um, other The conflicting side of it is that, you know, it's just kind of simply frustrating to hear people tell, like, the similar story of them feeling that they've been wrongly imprisoned and that false testimony has come from their cases Mm -hmm. and people have recanted statements from their cases, you know, and that's kind of for that to be like a repetitive 
thing, a reoccurring thing, is kind of frustrating. Even as a writer, you know, that kind of puts themselves into these stories to understand different people's situations, you know, it, it does get kind of conflicting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What was the relationship that uh, Gary had with the previous administration and district attorney's office? Of course, that was led by Seth Williams, who has since pled guilty to corruption. He's now serving out his sentence in the federal prison. Um, but did they did they feel like they were being brushed aside and ignored by Seth Williams' office? Did, did Seth ever really, or anybody in Seth's office, ever give them a break? Yeah, so there was not too much mention of Seth Williams. And I think that's simply because of, you know, the history of the district attorney's office, even still at that time, I don't think was that great. Mm. Um I don't think until Larry Krasner first came into this office to where even just, you know, there has even the before the policy changes came, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. before then, like just the presence in general, I don't think was really that attractive to a lot of people. And yeah. with the long history of the district attorney's office alone, I don't think really too many people had that much faith. Yeah, and get your, your the subject of your story, Gary McWhorter, he suggests that. you know In the article, you write, quote, uh, this is him speaking, my only avenue now is that conviction integrity unit. This was back in the 80s, and the people in the district attorney's office were vicious back then, man. Our criminal justice system is a joke. So, I mean, again, I mean, you're right. I look at this as a conflict. This guy knows the criminal justice system is a joke, and yet he still hasn't given up. And now he feels like there's a, uh, there's some there's some reprise that could potentially happen. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of speaks back to what we were talking about when you were asking me, you know, what do I feel about this? And I kind of said it was conflicting. I mean, you know, to wait this long, um, you know, just to even, I mean, who knows what goes inside of that prison cell every single day, you Mm -hmm. know, just outside of people staying mentally good, you know, the physical conditions of it the health conditions of it. You know, there's a lot of factors that uh, I think happen in prison that everybody doesn't know on a daily basis. And yeah, it's, it's a real tough situation. I would say that, you know, of is, is Gary McWhorter a healthy individual? Um, That I know of, I would say, yes, I haven't really gotten into that and those particulars just yet. What did you learn from his brother, Stefan, when you went to visit his barbershop in Point Breeze? Did you learn anything new? Uh, I, I know that, that he's, he's angry at a, quote, corrupt district attorney's office. Uh, he feels as though that that, that office has, has forced his family to spend thousands of dollars on legal representation uh, for a case that, quote, should have been thrown out. Anything else you learned from him? <laughs> yeah, well, his brother, um, you know, well, yeah, he owns the barbershop in uh, Point Breeze. And... His brothers, according to his brother Stefan, uh, speaking of Stefan, like he was heavily involved in some community activism. His brother said he helped organize the march. I couldn't, re- I can't remember right now what particular uh, march or what event it was in light of. But mm-hmm. his brother kind of gave insight to some of the things that he's seen in the neighborhoods that he's lived in in Philly just for so long, and this kind of relates a lot to. Uh, young people's interactions with police officers and how he's certain things kind of get brushed aside and different uh, stories that he's even seen happen right outside of his barbershop. Um, 
it's he has a real I would say community based barbershop. Okay. Um and I'll he he did give some insight and, and I think just off of personal life experience alone, um he was able to kind of illustrate his thoughts about how he views uh Philadelphia's system as far mm-hmm. as criminal justice goes. Mm-hmm. And just to put uh, a kind of a bow and wrap up on the story. So again, the subject of your story is Gary McWhorter. He was sentenced to life in prison on June 26, 1984. Uh, But then also in your story, you write that Regina Smith, uh, who was a witness, she sat in the Philadelphia courtroom on May 9th of 1984 and acknowledged a testimony that she gave uh, during McWhorter's trial for the homicide of John Baker was false. Um, I mean, is that timeline correct that, she said that she gave false testimony in May, or excuse me, May of 1984, and then the next month he was convicted anyway? Yes, it was. So, and that was kind of the issue that uh, Gary and the family were also kind of pointing out, that although, you know, false testimony was given, um, he was still convicted because of that. And, <sighs> and they were... They kind of cited the issue. They said there was heavy push from the district attorney's office at that time. Obviously, I wasn't even alive at that time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just just, you know, doing some, per, you know, some reading and, you know, we don't really know what all was going on between the office and the judge and, you know, certain things like not saying there was any type of corruption, but just to know, I think it is interesting that you kind of had these reoccurring stories of people getting you know falsely convicted and you know like you you see you start to go back and you read their old testimonies and you say oh well, they recanted back then but he was still convicted you know that's I think that's a um that's an element of some of these stories that aren't really as you know black and white as they can seem you know mm-hmm. and it does take some understanding of even even now that I still have to take some understanding of just how that even happened. Mm-hmm. So the other part, I'm, I just want to kind of clear up on the timeline. You know, further down in your story, uh, you continue talking about Regina Smith. Uh, you say Smith had initially identified McWhorter as the killer of Baker during a preliminary hearing on July 15th in 1982 and did the same again in the following year. Uh, February of 1983, McWhorter was given a life sentence and his post-trial motions were denied. McWhorter also filed a failed appeal attempt to the court in 1986. When did the actual murder happen? Right. So the murder happened back in, um, it was before 1980. So So 81? Yes. So I can pull up the, I mean, if I have to, I can pull up the actual document here. But yeah, he wasn't convicted for. So the, it was at least five years of of legalities. That right. Yeah. It's a. It's a. A lot of this stuff is a long process. Um. That's mm-hmm. and typically that involves um. You know, people sitting in jail until. You know, the actual sentencing is uh, given. Mm-hmm. So it's you know even then it's you know he's kind of sitting in jail for that amount of time. And of course, you know when it's a, a violent case like a murder case, right? Um, mm-hmm. you're kind of, at least in that period, kind of automatically going to be sitting in jail just of how the system is set up alone, you know? 
Um, when you start, how old is he? How old is McCorder? McCorder now he's he should be around his late fifties. Late fifties. Late fifties, early sixties. Yes. So he was in his mid twenties when all this happened. Right. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, um, from his story, um, he was with a group of friends outside a bar not too far um, from Southwest Philly, and he he was um, he knew a lot of people in the neighborhood. Uh, some of the people, uh, even on the on the statements that were giving uh, some of their statements, uh, he was familiar with already. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, like he's known even since he was younger than the time of the killing that happened. Mm. What's been, you know, and wrapping up, what's been the reaction you've gotten from this story, from your peers, from city officials, from from anybody? I mean, have you gotten any type of feedback or traction from this story? Right. Yeah. And I've gotten some feedback. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people generally from the feedback I've gotten were interested in the story itself and what it kind of speaks to understanding, like, how complex, you know, a criminal justice system kind of can be. I don't think there's really been, you know, too much focus on unraveling the issues in the city's criminal justice system, especially in Philly, I think, you know, for a long time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with going back to Larry Krasner, um, with him being in here now, it's kind of put the focus on that. And when you have, you know, spotlight cases of celebrities like uh, Meek Mill, who I've Mm -hmm. uh, covered, you know, it kind of brings when you have that and then you have Krasner coming in, you know, kind of polarizing figures in a sense. um, It puts a lot of attention on an issue I don't think has really been unraveled fully just yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this Krasner, I assume Krasner is not saying anything more than it's under review right now. Right. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, any insight into who John Baker was, the individual that uh, McCorder allegedly killed? Um, any insight to what happened that day he was killed? Like the, any color into what the incident was beyond he died? Right. And um, as I was kind of saying earlier, like with Regina Smith and, um, you know, some of the other people's statements, there it seemed as if, you know, a lot of the people were kind of familiar with each other. Um, John, mm-hmm. John Baker, to my understanding, um, was, had like a relationship with the lady. And, um, you know... With Regina Smith? Or, yeah, at least the lady who was given the statement or somebody else connected to her. And, um, okay. you know, it's, it's sometimes with a lot of these cases, a lot of these people uh, who end up giving statements about another person, you know, so on can be a lot closer than, you know, the next person who's not really in that story might realize, you know, mm. things, you know, a lot of things can be end up being connected a lot, a lot more closely than some people might really know. And that was kind of the case for uh, Gary McWhorter. In this case, when I was reading his letters, he was at, uh, he, he noted that he was very promiscuous in uh, mm. the neighborhood, you know, and he said. Gary was promiscuous? That's what he noted in his letter. He talked about how uh, he cited some people were jealous of him and certain certain things that he would have. And um, I think when, you know, a lot of neighborhoods, cities can be a lot more smaller than what they seem. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. oh, Philly's a small city. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> it's it, a big city, but it's like a small town. Everybody knows everybody's businesses. You know, everybody's fucking everybody for the most part. It's it's a very small town type of mentality. Right, and the case with this, you know, when you have these things like false testimonies, whatever. Um, when you have, when you talk about, like you said, small town, small city mentality. Whether it's a mistake, whether it's out of fear, you know, a tag and saying somebody did something can happen in the snap of, excuse me, in the snap of a finger. And, you know, whether it's being accurate, whether it's right, whether it's not, um, stuff like that, I think happens. But to your point, then, for a city this small, there should also be people who know and who, who are probably in the community who know that Gary McWhorter didn't do anything. Right. Who who kind of go? Oh, I mean, I you know they're probably like you know how they talk in barbershops. You know, uh, I knew that chick Regina. You know, man, she's always been a liar. She ain't shit. I can't believe they believed her. Blah 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 blah. I mean, and I guess that's what I was you know kind of referring to when I said reaction. Mm-hmm. Did you get anybody who came out and says, yeah, you know, Regina Smith is full of shit. Yeah, she did lie. Yeah, I knew about this story. Any, anything like that? Right, and that's not something I've gotten. And I think that also kind of speaks to something else. You know that when you have some cases that involve, you know, murder and um, it does seem like some circles can be closely tied, you, and a side effect of that could be, you know, some people are just choosing not even to talk about the situation alone. Yeah, remain indifferent. Right, just remain indifferent. And that's not an uncommon thing that happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. All right. So just to wrap up, Gary Gary McHorter Mm -hmm. uh, was sentenced to life in prison on June 26, 1984, uh, despite a false testimony a month prior to that. uh, Regina uh, Smith uh, on May 9th gave that false testimony, uh, or I should say she acknowledged uh, that she gave the false testimony. Um, In the affidavit, she says, I am not sure who I saw shoot John Baker and never been sure of anything regarding the identification of the person who shot John Baker. Uh, she had initially identified McCorder as the killer of Baker during a preliminary hearing on July 15th in 1982 and did, did so the same year following in February of 1983. 30 plus years now, uh, they have filed a new uh, hearing or a new filing with the Conviction Integrity uh, Unit at the District Attorney's Office now that the District Attorney's Office is led by Larry Krasner. Uh, and more importantly than that, uh, since the beginning of this year, the district attorney's office has received 40% more requests for exonerations in all of 2017. Clearly, people in the convicted community are looking at, at Larry Krasner as some sort of hero, as somebody who can mitigate their circumstances. Do I have a timeline in the context correct? Yes. Yes. Anything else you want to add to this story that I, I didn't get a chance to ask you or anything that you wanted to say that I haven't had a chance to to kind of prompt you to say? Um, well, kind of reference the timeline. Um, that's kind of another element, I think, that kind of, I, w- I don't want to say get ignored, but not necessarily completely understood with some of these stories that, you know, cases get reviewed sometimes for a long time. What, mm-hmm. you, know, what seem, you know, like when you start talking about things that might have happened ye- years ago or a year ago. And when they finally come up, you know, that's when people's grab attention. But a lot of these cases do get reviewed for a long time. And, you know, the particulars about that, of course, we don't know. 
um, because it's an investigation. You know, things get reviewed. Things have to re reach a certain criteria by the DA's office to get reviewed. So, you know, the process of some of this stuff, um, even though we understand the story and, you know, how traumatic some of these stories can be, just the process alone, I think, also adds another element to that because it's it's that time, that waiting period of trying to find justice for such a long time. Mm -hmm. Philip, give your contact information, your Twitter, your Instagram, uh, for people who may want to follow up with you, may want to pitch you a story, or just want to read more of your work. Uh, yes, so my Twitter, I can be found at Phil, P-H-I-L-L-E-J underscore. That's on Twitter. Um, my email, I can be emailed at pjackson at phillytrib.com. And on Instagram, you take great photos. I want to, <laughs> want to get people to see that, too. What's your Instagram? All right, yeah. So on Instagram, uh, similar to Twitter, uh, Phil with two L's, so P-H-I-L-L period E-J on Instagram. E is your middle name, I assume? Yes. What's your middle name? Eric. Eric. Philip Eric Jackson. Okay, cool. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Philip Jackson. He is a reporter for the Philadelphia Tribune and a freelance writer for Billy Penn. His latest piece for Billy Penn is out now, entitled Imprisoned 34 Years Despite False Testimony. He's one of many looking to Philly DA Krasner for help. Of course, you can read that on BillyPenn.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Flood the Drummer. My Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is all the same. Flood the Drummer. Subscribe to the Drumming for Justice podcast on iTunes, Anchor, and wherever podcasts are available. Until next time, I'm Flood the Drummer, and I'm Drumming for Justice. Yeah.